learning to be amazed by Jesus and to respond like those who encountered him in this gospel by trusting him and following him. Today's passage is verses 13 to 17, and these four or five uh, verses are really radical, radical verses. And this is a story that maybe for some of us you've heard before, and, and we always can be in danger of just being overly familiar with these stories. I was just thinking about what it would be like to be a young, young disciple, young believer in Christ before the Gospel of Mark was finished. And maybe that young believer would have heard about Christ and would have definitely heard the gospel, the truth of Christ dying for sins, rising again, and offering forgiveness, and really sharing his victory with all those who would put their faith in him. But imagine being that young believer, never having heard some of the details that we are so familiar with, and reading through the gospel of Mark, and coming across this story for today about Jesus' time with Levi and these sinners. I think such a young believer would just be astonished by what he or she would read. This, this short story here is really fantastic, really radical. It's really a priceless story, and it, it, it makes me uh, think of a, of a story actually about a family in upstate New York, I think the Buffalo area, who had an old dust-covered family painting of Jesus and Mary. And uh, it was behind the couch, actually, covered with dust. And they found recently that it is likely a Michelangelo, um, uh, the La Pieta. Uh, and one of the, I think there's only three paintings by Michelangelo that are out there. This painting that they had behind their couch, covered with dust, this family heirloom, was a Michelangelo. And they weren't really aware of what they had. It's... If, if it is indeed a Michelangelo, it would be worth as much as $300 million. Well, today's passage, today's passage is like that painting. It's one that we're familiar with. Maybe it's, uh, it's dust-covered, it's behind the couch, and, and we just think, well, I've heard that. Yeah, that's kind of cool. But this is a priceless story. And the truths that are here in this story really, really are radical and really should change our lives, should change our view of God and of ourselves and of others. And so what I want to do is I want to pray and ask God to give us the ability just to see how priceless this story is. Then I want to take time just to kind of get into the story a little bit and then talk about two key truths from this story. So let's pray and ask God to show us the wonder of this story in his word. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for who you are. This is a real story. This is something you did, Jesus, that came from who you are and your ministry. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to understand. Lord, we confess, I confess, Lord, that I treat your word and these amazing stories like that painting behind the couch. Just, yeah, I heard that already. But Lord, that's not what this story is like. It's priceless. And we ask you to give us the ability and the power of your Holy Spirit to grasp just how wonderful this story is, how wonderful the implications of it are to be changed, Lord, by it. And as a result, to go from this place freshly empowered by you and freshly renewed in what you call us to. 
God, you're able to do all this and more, so we ask it of you, and we trust you, and we thank you that you move in these ways in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at verses 13 to 17 together. Jesus is in the city of Capernaum, and this is a, right after what we heard about last week, at some point, either immediately or within the next few days after that. He's in this port city, this small port city ministering, and it says in verse 13, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God's word, Mark 2, 13 to 17. So let's dig into this amazing passage. Let's just dig into the story a little bit and learn what was going on, review what was going on. Jesus is in Capernaum. This is basically his headquarters. It's near the Sea of Galilee. It's a port city. It's near the border with the next uh, area as well. This is where Peter lived, and apparently Peter's house was where Jesus stayed. And as we've been following the story, we've been seeing that this has been a city that's just full of excitement at this point. This, this prophet from Nazareth, who is more than a prophet, has been doing amazing things in Capernaum. He has been teaching on the kingdom of God in ways that they've never heard before. His teaching has made an impact on them. But they've also watched him just do amazing miracles, healing people, driving out demons, changing people's lives. There's a lot of excitement going on. Last week we learned about how he uh, made it clear that he's more than a prophet for he, he forgave a man his sins, his sins against God. And so in that was making it very clear that he saw himself as God. And then to prove it, to, to give some evidence to it, he healed the man who was a paralytic, who gets up and walks away. So he is doing these miracles, and really the most important miracle we learned last week, being able to forgive sins. And this city is just, uh, you can imagine, it's just all astir as, as they experience Jesus in their midst. And then he does something in this passage today that is really unexpected. It's really beyond anything that they would have thought of before. Why is it unexpected? Well, he calls a tax collector. He calls a tax collector named Levi to follow him. Why is that unexpected? Why is that maybe something that for some was more uh, wild or wilder than anything else that he had done before? Because this man was a tax collector. And a tax collector at the time, for many reasons, was a unlikely, really, they would have considered 
him a completely unlikely person to be asked to follow Jesus. First, tax collectors worked for either the Roman government or the government of Herod. Herod was a, a, a local governor. They worked for either one of them, and both the Roman government and the government of Herod was not recognized as legitimate. Matter of fact, they were deeply, deeply despised. Most likely Levi, and he's known uh, by Matthew. Matthew was uh, a Greek uh, version of his name or another name in, in Greek. Matthew, the tax collector, most likely worked for Herod. For This was a port city uh, on the border, and he probably was collecting uh, custom taxes uh, for trade items that came through Capernaum. And so he worked for Herod, and, and to work for the Roman government or to work for Herod's government was to be an outcast, to be dis despised. But there was more to it if you were a tax collector than just the fact that you worked for the Romans. Pretty much all the tax collectors at the time were crooks. They would basically skim money for themselves, and they would live uh, a wealthy lifestyle compared to those around them. This was a, uh, a relatively poor area. And yet the tax collectors would tax people and, and take some for their own. And this was how it was done actually in the ancient world, not just in, in this area. For a, ma a matter of fact, uh, to be an honest tax co collector was so rare that when one of them died, uh, I think it was in, in Rome, he, he, uh, his friends thought it was so unusual that this man was an honest man that, that his inscription on his tomb or whatever said this, here lies an honest tax collector. So they were dishonest, they were crooks, they were outcasts, but also for Levi, who by his name we know would, would have been ethnically Jewish, part of the people of God, uh, he was, along with all tax collectors, someone who had just given up on following the covenant, living under the covenant of Moses. He had rejected, he would have rejected entirely what it meant to trust in God and follow him what it would have meant to to be a faithful follower they gave up on that entirely they didn't try uh, and that at that time to be in the, uh, among the people of God uh, was to actually be under a lot of rules that were in the Bible and we've talked about this before that that the teachers the scribes that are mentioned in this story would would have taken the rules in scripture were, which were meant to be responses in faith to God and they would add things on them and, and just have all these silly rules and 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 it was difficult to follow but these guys the tax collectors didn't not only did they not follow all those rules but they didn't even try to follow the simple ones they just gave up entirely so they were outside of the people of God and live these really would have been sinful lifestyles blatantly just think of it so this guy is known in this town probably about two or three thousand people he's he's a tax collector he's despised he's a crook he's getting money from you he's outside the covenant he's living wealthy and he's living right in your face basically right this is a small community look I, I don't care about God and in some ways I don't care about this community but I'm wealthy and I'm happy with my friends that's the scenario here so it, he would have lived a blatantly anti-life uh, of faith, faith anti-Christian life, I would say, but they wouldn't have understood themselves that way at this point. But he lived outside the people of God. And so it was just amazing that Jesus would call Levi to follow him. He would have been the last person you would have expected. And, and yet we see him 
following Christ. We see Christ saying, follow me, and, and Levi gets up. He gets up from his tax booth. He leaves his tax booth, and he follows Jesus. It's amazing. It's dramatic. Now, remember, Mark likes drama, right? Mark likes to show things. Immediately this happened. Immediately this happened. Immediately that happened. Uh, and, and he usually will show kind of the conclusion, the dramatic event that happened. You need to understand that, that Mark doesn't want us to think that this just came out of the blue, that, that Mark was there at his tax booth, had never heard of Jesus, never seen him at all, and he just walked by. He had no idea who he was, and Jesus said, follow me. And Mark just said, okay. I'll get up and follow you. There's a background here. And we've learned how Mark, though, likes to kind of, likes to emphasize the drama. Why does Mark do that? Because he wants to emphasize, one, how amazing Jesus is. And two, the only right response, in light of how amazing he is, is to do something dramatic, to follow him, to give your life to him, to follow him. That's what he's emphasizing. That's why he does this. But he wouldn't want us to understand that there wasn't a background. We learned that earlier in the call of the disciples, right? We can look in other places in Scripture. There's this dramatic call. They're by, they're fishing. Jesus says, you know, come follow me. I'll make you fishers men. They leave the nets. Boom, they follow him. But we can read elsewhere that, that they had had probably even months of contact with Jesus and following him to some degree already. So for Levi, I think that was part of the background. You, we, we see the dramatic conclusion to follow at this point. But for Levi, there would have been interactions, I think, with the disciples. He was the tax collector in that city. He would have known probably Peter and Andrew, James and John. This was their hometown. Matter of fact, he probably collected taxes from them, and they probably didn't like him a whole lot. He also would have heard about Jesus. He would have heard about the miracle. Remember, remember that Jesus was healing, and, and there was just this huge crowd, probably a thousand people maybe, who came, and he just healed people all night. Levi would have heard of that if he wasn't in the crowd himself. So he was familiar to a degree. Maybe even, we, we, I, don't, I can't say this, maybe even he had a personal interaction with Jesus already. I think it's likely. Because Jesus' ability to call him radically to follow him probably was based on information. Now, Jesus could have gained that information as God just immediately or through interaction. So this is whole background, I think, to this dramatic response from this unlikely person. What do you think it was like for Levi to struggle through the implications of, of following Jesus? See, I don't think he just kind of made this decision last minute on an impulse. I imagine there was a process for Levi. Doesn't necessarily have to be one, but that's the usual thing. There's a process. There's a process for all of us. For every believer, you don't just kind of come in never having heard anything about the gospel or God uh, or anything, then come in and just say, I believe that's very rare. And, and even the person who did that, I would question, do they really know what they're doing? For most people, it's a process. What would it have been like for Levi? Think about it. On one hand, he had Jesus preaching about the kingdom, preaching and declaring that he is a prophet, but more than a prophet, one who can forgive sins. On one hand, there's the kingdom of God. There's forgiveness. There's reconciliation. There, there's somebody who comes to fulfill the scriptures and really to answer the longings in every human heart in a powerful way on one hand. But on the other hand is his old lifestyle, making lots of money, getting to do what he wants, getting to party with his friends, living the high life. And as he encounters Jesus, I'm sure he's wrestling through, what should I do? What should I do? To follow him means to leave this. 
really, he gets up from the tax booth and he follows. He gives up that whole lifestyle. He wrestled through that. And we all wrestle. I can remember for me, I, uh, coming to Christ was really the, the uh, dramatic point of, of probably a whole year of a process and probably even years before that. I, I was raised in a home that taught about Christ. But there was a year before I came to Christ, there was a wrestling. I was aware of my lifestyle and, and who I was, and I was aware of, of in, in a, didn't quite understand it, but the call of God to give those things up. It took a whole year for me before I came to the point. And that's how it is for really each one of us. Now, some people in some churches will call someone who's in that phase of wrestling, in that phase of having the one hand in the other, in that phase of, you know, this is interesting and intriguing, but I'm not sure. They call him a seeker. Some people say, well, that's not a good term to use because, you know, no one seeks, right, without God. And I got that. I believe it. But I think a seeker can be a, a, a good term because God is doing something in their life and, and for whatever reasons is stirring in them the desire to consider these two options in a sense to seek. That's what's going on in Levi's life leading up to this point. That's what goes on in people's lives. And I just need to say, we as a church are glad you're here with us if you're one of those seekers because we think this is a great place to seek. This is a great place to find friends who are going to be patient with you and answer your questions, whether one-on-one -on -one or in part of a small group, or if you're part of one of our uh, programs or, or small groups designed just for seekers. We run the Alpha program, and that's a, a program for seekers, for somebody who's wondering, one hand versus the other, or maybe someone who has already believed but needs to be refreshed in those basics. We're glad you're here because Jesus welcomes seekers and calls us as his people to do the same. We are to be a, a church that serves as a context for seekers. We are to be like Jesus in this story, welcoming people in and telling them about Jesus. So that's what's going on with Levi, uh, this, this uh, dramatic encounter. He's a tax collector. He's an unlikely candidate to be called by Jesus. He's coming from this background that no one would ever expect to produce a follower of Christ. And yet, something goes on in his life as he encounters Christ. And then there's this dramatic call. Jesus says, come follow. And he says, yes. He gets up. He leaves everything. And he follows him. And then the, the story continues with that. There's more to this story. And this is where we get into these amazing implications from what Jesus says. And that's what I want to get into next. Our two amazing implications one is that Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And then second with that is that Jesus sends us not to the righteous, but to sinners as rescued sinners. These two points are just so profound. So the story continues. Levi gets up, he leaves everything and he follows him, and then he invites Jesus into his home. He invites him into his home and invites all his tax collector sinner buddies over the house as well. And it says in the, the passage as you follow along it says and as he reclined at table in his house many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him 
And we may read that and think, well, that makes sense. I mean, of course, you know, Levi just came to follow Jesus. And doesn't it make sense to have an open house? You know, this is a new deal for Levi, and he wants his friends to understand kind of who this guy Jesus is and, and, you know, what the new Levi is and so forth. But that's actually not why it's here in Scripture. That's not why it's here. That's not why this was preserved for us so that we could just say, well, yeah, it makes sense. When When you come to Jesus, you should have an open house and have your friends. I mean, that's a good thing. That's a great idea. But that's not the point here. The reason this is here is it's making a statement about just how radical Jesus is and just how radically different it is to follow him. It says that Jesus reclined at table in his house, and, and uh, that means that he had dinner there. Uh, the reason it says reclined at table is in, in those days, if you went to dinner at someone's house, you didn't sit around a table in chairs. You sat on the floor. There would be a low table. Usually uh, in a bigger house would be a U-shaped table. And they'd put out cushions there. And you'd lie down facing the table on an elbow type thing with your feet away. You reclined. And others would do the same. They would, they would lie down around the table. And that's how you would eat your dinner. So when it says reclined at the table, it means he had dinner with him. What's radical about that? Well, in this day, in this story, to eat dinner with somebody was totally different than what it means for us. When we eat dinner pretty casually with people, we'll have dinner with anybody, right? We go to those restaurants. Have you ever been to a restaurant where they seat you at a big, long table with people you've never met? And is it ever a problem? Unless the people are just really obnoxious, I guess. It's just, you don't, you don't mind, right? It's actually kind of fun. Peg and I did a, a cruise in the fall and, uh, for our 25th anniversary. And by the way, cruises are, can be very affordable ways to vacation. We had a great time. And what they do every night uh, for dinner is you go and you sit down at a table. They seat you with people you've never met. And we kind of enjoyed that. It was kind of fun. Like you get to talk to them and interact and, and, uh, and learn about their lives. That's normal for us. That's totally opposite what the culture in the Bible was like. You did not eat. One, you did not eat as a good Jew, a good follower of the law. You did not eat with somebody who was not committed to the same level of purity, same level of obedience. There were these laws of purification. There were these laws of, of what to eat and how to eat and how to wash that, that in that day, the way they understood, they did not understand the law correctly in every way. Uh, but in that day, if you were devout, you did all these things. And you would not want to eat with somebody who didn't because you would contaminate yourself by being around them. So a devout Jew of the day, you just would not eat with anybody. You, you only ate with people who kind of knew the etiquette of the day, the ceremonial laws of the day. That's one thing. You just didn't eat with anybody. But secondly... Secondly, when you ate with somebody, you were saying a lot more than what we say when we eat with people. We just mean, we're just hanging out when we eat with people. In that day, to eat with someone, to have them over the house, was almost like having them sign a contract with you. It was a statement that this is somebody I fully accept. It's almost like a business partnership type statement. You're saying, I approve of this person, and I stand by them. You almost were, it would be like, imagine having someone over your house, they come over and you, and you say, well, just one thing. Before we sit down together, we have this friendship contract we want you to sign. And it means all these things. It means you will follow, you know, be loyal. I will be loyal to you. You'll walk in integrity. We'll walk in integrity and so forth. And, and all these other things. And sign the contract and you can have dinner with us. We, would, we don't do that. But that was what was implied in that day when you ate together. So that's the context here to what Jesus does. So Jesus calls Levi. Levi gets up and follows him. And then 
Levi invites him over his house and invites all his tax collector and sinner buddies over the house, and Jesus is there eating with them. And I imagine his disciples are freaking out because they all were probably good practicing Jews. And can you imagine them sitting around and saying, what's going on here? What's Jesus thinking? He's, is, is, has he gone crazy? What's, what's, what's going on? What's the point? Do you see who's here at this house? I don't let my wife know what's going on, please. This is just not, I mean, that was the sort of thing. It was just, they would have been freaking out because it was so outside the bounds. That's the point here. That's what's being said here. And there's implications that, that follow from that. It's, it's interesting, too. It says there were many who followed him. So this was a packed house. This was a packed house of people. I don't know the number. But basically, all the tax collectors and sinners, probably sinners from that town and maybe beyond, were there in that place. There were many who followed him there with the disciples. And Jesus is, is welcoming them all to this meal. Well, it's radical, and so the scribes of the Pharisees, who are the keepers of the law, the ones that interpret the, the law and the obedience to the law, they hear about it. It says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This is supposed to be a prophet. It's supposed to be a man who follows God, who's dedicated to the holy God. And he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. What's going on? They, they're not curious. It's not like, why does he, like, you know, explain this? That's not what's going on. It's like, how could he ever, ever think to eat with tax collectors and sinners? They are indignant with him. Now, as we read the story, because that that's not our culture, it might just be hard to understand just how wild it is. It may be hard to cut the scribes some slack because it just seems, well, what's the deal? It's just a meal. Why, why are you getting upset? So let me give you maybe some modern analogies to help you really think through this. Could you imagine having dinner and inviting over your house 40 people from just a, a, a walk of life you would never expect? Now, for each of us, there's different walks of life that would be outside the pale, outside of what's acceptable. Imagine inviting over your house to sit down with your family and, and enjoy a meal, 40 gang members, just hardened gang members. They're there, they're, they're tattooed up and down, you know, they got their, their gear on, they're talking their lingo and stuff. They, they drive up to your house, they park, and the you know, the music's going, the big bass is going from the, the cars and stuff, and they just start, you're, you know, coming out of their cars, 40 of them, and your neighbors are watching, what is going on there? And your neighbors are probably thinking, you know, call the police, there's a home invasion going on or something, right? And they come into your house, and they have dinner with you. That's the sort of context. Or maybe it's 40 drug addicts, 40 homeless people. Or how about this, 40 gay marriage activists you invite to your house? Because one of them has said, hey, I'm interested in, in following Christ. And you invite them in your house, and everyone knows about it. That's what's going on here. I hope that helps you just kind of get how radical this is, what sort of statement Jesus is making about himself and about following, about following God. 
And he, so he hears about the, the complaints of the, of the scribes of the Pharisees, and he addresses those complaints. He says this, he answers uh, first with a metaphor, so a picture of a story to, to communicate it, and then an explicit statement. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So that's the first part. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then this, I have not come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is why I've come. Not to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm in the exact right place that I should be when I'm in this house. That's what he's saying. And he uses this story of a, of a physician. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, Right? Nobody who's well goes to the doctor. We don't have hospitals full of well people, right? You don't sit in the emergency room for four hours waiting to see the doctor just so he can say, oh, you're well, it's nice to see you again, no? You go to the emergency room, you're willing to endure four hours or eight hours or whatever it might be because you're sick and you're desperate for someone to help. Hospitals are full of sick people. Physicians do not spend their time professionally around well people. They work with sick people. Jesus is saying that I'm a physician. Jesus is a physician. And people are sick. That's the reality. That's why he came, because people are sick. And the sickness that we have is not merely physical. It's spiritual. There's a spiritual sickness. We know that right here in the context because he says explicitly what it's about. I have not come to call the righteous I've not come to call those who are well spiritually, but sinners, those who are sick spiritually. That's why I've come. This is a profound statement from Christ. This is a profound statement that that should change our lives when we get it. First off, it's really good news for sinners. It's really good news for us, for you And for me, it's incredibly good news that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came to call sinners. He came for sinners. He came as a physician for the sick. That's good news. Why? Because I am a sinner. Think about it. God is perfectly holy. Perfectly holy. Perfect in his power perfect in his wisdom, perfect in his goodness, perfect in his innocence, perfect in and of himself. He is all glorious. The scripture says that he dwells in unapproachable light. God is so glorious that that he dwells in unapproachable light. No one can fully know him. No one can fully experience his infinite glory. To go into his presence, to approach the unapproachable light, would get you vaporized or something. He is God. He's holy. And he doesn't need to spend his time with us. He's perfect in and of himself. And yet, we are starkly different from God. We are so different from God. We are weak, we are frail, we are imperfect. And worse than that, we're full of pride and attitude and greed, and we somehow ridiculously think that we're on par with God, that somehow we should have the same rights as God. We should get to call the shots 
for our own lives and the lives of others. We should get, get to determine our own destiny. We, get, we should get to do what we want. And if God gets in the way, then get him out of the way. We gossip and complain. He speaks truth and grace. We steal and deceive. He gives and gives and always represents himself truthfully. We do evil and think evil all the time. God only thinks and does good all the time. I don't know about you, but I can't get through a day. I can't get through an hour. I'm not even sure if I can get through a moment, an instantaneous moment, and live in truly loving God and loving others. Sin has had such a profound effect on my life that everything's distorted to some degree, if I'm honest with myself. And so if I look at myself, and I think if, if we all look at ourselves honestly before this God, this perfect holy God who lives in unapproachable light, we don't have a chance. We don't stand a chance. We are in trouble. I think of it this way that while I know that everybody made in the image of God has worth, and the fact that you're made in the image of God, and I have worth, and so there's a qualifier to this analogy for me, this metaphor for me, knowing that, but when I think about his holiness and his greatness and his goodness, and I think about my pride and my greed and my sinfulness, I think of myself as a, like a black fly flying around God's head. And he would have every right just to swap me away forever. But that's not what he does. That's why it's so amazing. That's why this story is so profound. Instead of doing what would seem to make sense, and certainly if I were God, I would swap me away forever. Instead of doing what seems to make sense, God comes as a man, is born a humble baby, lives a life of loving others and loving God, and then offers that life on the cross for me and for you. He dies the death we deserve to die so that we might live the life that he deserves to live. He offers himself for us freely and then says, here's all you have to do. Turn away from your self-effort and your sin and trust in me. That's all you have to do. Turn and trust. Just see what you have and embrace the offer. That's all you have to do. Through the simple means of faith, he offers forgiveness and life and renewal and love and a life that never ends. He offers that to us. That is so profound. That is this priceless painting that we at times just think covered in dust behind the couch. This profound truth that Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for you and for me. He gave himself for us. He offered himself up for us. He made a way for us to be forgiven and to know God and to dwell with God and to be loved and to be restored and renewed. This story is so profound. It is such good news for you and for me. But there's more to it. We could just stop there. I mean, that, that is just good enough. We could stop and just say, thank you, Lord. We could worship right now and just say, thank you, Lord. You came for sinners. You came for me. You came for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you're not one who just swats the black fly away, but embraces and rescues the black fly, rescues us. But there's more to the story than just that, and I wouldn't be honoring this in Scripture if I just stop with that, as great as that is. 
There's another part of this story. We've learned as we go through Mark that these stories are here to be amazed by Jesus and to follow Jesus. There's an implication here in this story that we are not only to be amazed by Jesus, and that's what I've basically said right now, to be amazed that he comes for us as sinners, but to follow him, which means to be like him, which means to follow after him. And these stories are meant to be implicit uh, instruction to us how we are to live. When it says that he came not for the righteous but sinners, he's calling us to understand that for ourselves. And so there's a couple ways that that this verse, uh, this section, instructs us in how to live as his followers. First, he says that he came not, I want to just think about this, he says he came not for the righteous but for sinners. So why would he say that? I came not for the righteous but for sinners. Is he just like saying, I, I don't care about those who are religious? I don't care about, you know, you scribes, the Pharisees. Just, you bother me, go away. I'm here for these guys. Is that what he means? That he only cares about those who are really bad and, and not anybody else? No, he's, he's using some irony here with the scribes. He's, he's basically saying something that, that is a little bit uh, unexpected basically saying, guys, the, the reality is, is that there's no one righteous. And your problem is you think you're righteous. And I didn't come for those who think they're righteous. Because they're not going to have any interest in me. It just works that way. Why do you need a savior? Why do you need someone to die for your sins if you're not that bad of a person? Why do you need someone to come and rescue you if, if you can do well on your own? These guys thought they were doing well on their own. They were doing the religious thing. They were, what at least they thought they were, obeying God. They thought they were righteous, and so Jesus is saying, no, I didn't come for you then. If you think you're righteous, I didn't come for you. Scripture is very clear, though, that there's no one who is righteous. Jesus himself says, no one is good but God alone. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, not even one. We are all sinful. We are all unrighteous. We are all sinners. Yes, we are sinners to different degrees. And sometimes that gets us in trouble because we look at the person who's a sinner to a greater degree than us, and we think, well, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. I'm, I'm a righteous person. And that's when we start to get into trouble. That's when we start to be like the scribes. We think we don't need Jesus. But the reality is we're all sinful. If you had a glass of water, pure spring water, really cold, nice to drink, and I took a big clop of nasty muck and put it in the glass of pure water and said, here, drink. Would you drink it? No. But what if I just took like a little half of a teaspoon of muck and put it in that glass and stirred it? Would you drink it? No. It doesn't matter to what degree the pure spring water is mucked up, whether it's full of dirt and muck or whether it's just slightly tainted. It's still not fit to drink. That's the reality of us. Sin comes in and affects everything, to whatever degree that might be. None is righteous. And so Jesus came for everybody, really, because he came for sinners. But he only comes for those who recognize that they are sinners, who stop the charade of pretending that they have righteousness in and of themselves. These guys were fooling themselves. 
They thought by following these ceremonial laws, they could somehow avoid contamination. And yet the contamination, they already were contaminated. The contamination came from within, from their own hearts, full of greed and, and pride and evil. They were already contaminated. They were no better than the tax collectors and the sinners themselves. So Jesus is pointing that out in this, this irony, in this ironic statement, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this truth should inform us as followers of Christ. What this truth does is it grabs a hold of us where we are and this tendency to think that somehow we're better than others. To somehow think that, you know, we're the righteous ones and those other people are sinners. And it, and it levels the playing field. It says, guys, you're no different ultimately in your sin than anybody else. You're no better than tax collectors or sinners. You're no better. You're still a sinner. You're a rescued sinner. And yes, Jesus is working in you to be more and more like him. And there is real righteousness that's happening, but it's mixed in with your sin. And ultimately, you're no better than the worst person you, you see out there. You're no better than the tax collectors and sinners. You're no better than the gang member. You're no better than the addict or the homeless person or the gay rights activist or whatever that other person you compare yourself to may be. You're no better. It levels the playing field. And that alone should alter how we relate to other people. Because that's the implication Jesus is getting at. That not only is this good for you, but this is how you are to live. You are to live humbly before other people. You are to be one who invites people in your home as well or goes to their home. You are to be one who's not afraid to be seen with the undesirables. You are to live like Jesus, humble. As a fellow sinner, a rescued sinner, a changing sinner, yes, but, but no better. It levels the playing field. And Jesus tells us to, to go and, and live like he did. Now, there's aspects of Jesus that we will never and are to never do. We cannot atone for anyone's sin. But to follow him means to be like him. He told his disciples explicitly in John 20, he said, after he had risen from the grave, Jesus said to them again, it says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me to what? Not call the righteous, but sinners. So I am sending you to not call the righteous, but sinners. So guys, let's not spend our time calling the righteous. Let's not spend our time as a church being a church that just wants to create a holy, comfortable huddle of the righteous. That's a tendency we all have. That's a tendency the church has always had. Let's not spend our time doing that. How can we kind of be the righteous and protect ourselves from the unrighteous? We are to be holy. That's part of it. We ought to follow Jesus, but we are still sinners. We are still struggling, and we are no better than others. So let's not call the righteous and do this work, but instead let's seek after sinners. Let's call the sinners. Let's go out and interact. Let's invite them in. Let this place, even on a Sunday, be like Levi's dining room. If the band could come up as we close. I want us to hear that, and I want us to understand the, the, the radical implications, not only the good news for ourselves, but for our identity as a church. The church is not to be a holy huddle. It's not a cruise ship for the righteous. 
We are to be a missionary people. We are to be a hospital for the sick. Mark 2, 13 to 17 leaves us no option. So in conclusion, I just want you to think about it. As I've spent time in this passage, I'm just realizing, you know, there's a lot of growth to go on in my life. And I think there's a lot of growth to go on in our lives to be more like Jesus. And I don't want to overwhelm you, but I want to, one, challenge you with this truth, just to wrestle with it and think, am I being like Jesus or am I more like the scribes? That's the first thing. The second thing is, what can I do about it? And here's what I'd ask you to, to think about as, as we take a minute before we go into closing worship. Who are the tax collectors and sinners in your life? Who are the people around you who you don't really want to reach out to, but the Lord might be sending you to them? Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's your neighbors. It doesn't have to be the 40 gang members. That's great if it is. Maybe it's your extended family. Sometimes those are the ones that are the most difficult to be around. Who are the tax collectors in your life? And then second, how can you reach them? What small step can you take to love them and to reach into their lives? And to recognize that you're not Jesus, you're not going to walk by the tax booth and have them follow you, follow Jesus the first day. It's a process. So it's going to take time of being around their lives and loving them and speaking the truth. So what can you do? Can you have them over dinner? Can you help with the home projects? Maybe you need to get involved with one of the ministries in our church, get involved with Alpha or our homeless ministry. Maybe for you, it's just for the first time to come to VBS and watch these little kids who have no church and have no Bible at home and need somebody who's going to love them, show them Christ, someone who's going to be patient with them and their undisciplined ways. Maybe that's your step. What step can you take knowing that Jesus has come not to call the righteous but sinners? That's good news for you, but now you are to come and do the same. Let's think about that, and we'll close in worship.